Thank you, Kelly, for excellent reading of the word. Now for our sermon text, we'll focus today on the first four verses of the 14th chapter of John and then on verses 12 through 14. But for context, let's hear the entire basic first half of John 14. John 14 verses 1 through John 14 verses 1 through 14 for context and let's all stand as we hear the word. The word of the Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated as we ask for his help in prayer. Our Father God and Lord of all, we have before us this, your word, the very word of God given to us for our edification, for our encouragement, for training us up in righteousness and the righteousness that we need so desperately each day. Give us clarity, we pray today, in seeing and hearing your voice in this preaching of your word. Guard us from error uh, in what is said and what is heard today as we seek rather to be transformed by what we will be taught in this word by your Holy Spirit. It's for your glory that we ask it and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it, it was a, I have to say this, it was a pleasure to join with many of you at Presbytery this weekend. It's great to see how God is showing his goodness to Stonebridge. I cannot express to you how thrilling it is to see God answer your prayers to see that from my perspective and uh, the blessing that you've been to us and how God is blessing Stonebridge with Taylor Wright and how God is blessing Taylor and his family with you all. Uh, that is a thrilling thing. Again, I used some words, but words cannot express how thrilling that is. So it was really great to see. So let's, let's get to John chapter 14. I 
as I'm looking at John chapter 14, and we did kind of the middle part of what we just read last time in January, if you're here, and now we're going to kind of do the bookends of 1 to 14. But I read in R.C. Sproul's commentary on John that this whole 14th chapter of John is, and we've just worked in the first half so far, but he, he had in there that this whole 14th chapter of John is, along with 1 Corinthians 13, is historically one of the favorite chapters of the Bible in poll after poll after poll after, uh, of professing Christians. And when we looked at that part of this chapter a few weeks ago in January, we saw one reason why it's a favorite, and that is because of the comfort and hope it gives us in knowing that our Lord Jesus is the God of all comfort and that he and he alone can soothe the troubled soul. Ultimately, he soothes the troubled soul with himself, breaking into the lives of his people, saving our souls, and providing the way to the Father, showing us in himself the love of the Father. We saw that as Jesus answered both Thomas's and Philip's questions by establishing his own deity. So we've already looked at one reason why people love John chapter 14. But there are other reasons why this chapter is probably a favorite, and today we want to look at yet another, uh, another reason, and that has to do with the hope it gives us as God's blood-bought and redeemed people, the hope it gives us in the future, in the future. The conversations that Jesus has had with Thomas and then Philip are not, not primarily about the future. He, he, Jesus speaks with Thomas about being the way to the Father, and then he spoke, you remember, with Philip about seeing the Father in Jesus himself and, and what he said and done in their presence in these three years of knowing him. Those verses uh, from 5 to uh, 11 that we looked at a few weeks ago in January are mainly focused on the past and the present of these disciples to whom Jesus is speaking. But today we want to take up what Jesus is saying about the future. He's saying something about the future here because he says two very significant things about the future of any of Jesus' disciples. Any of them, any, any of us, any of them who were hearing it then and any of us who at this point are his future disciples, us including us sitting here today. Jesus says in this chapter, he says interesting, extraordinary, hopeful things things about the future that followers of Jesus can anticipate because of their conversion to Christ, because in their walking with him, they can anticipate things that in their future they could never have anticipated before they knew him. And these things apply even down to those of us sitting here together today, we who are followers of Jesus. In these two sections we want to look at today, there's somewhat of an immediate future being talked about by Jesus in verses 12 to 14. And that's where we'll spend most of our time. So somewhat of an immediate future being talked about in verses 12 to 14. But then there's also a distant future, an eternal, final, glorious promise of a future being talked about for the Christians, being talked about in verses 1 through 4, which we'll get to at the end. So again, kind of like in January, we're, we're kind of working backwards through this text. But first, let's take up the more immediate future of verses 12 to 14. 
In the previous conversation with Philip, previous to verses 12 to 14, Jesus had been emphasizing how the very things that his disciples had witnessed Jesus doing, the very words that they had heard him saying, these words and deeds were proof enough, Jesus said, that Jesus, who described himself as both being in the Father and the Father being in him, what he said and did, according to Jesus, was proof enough that Jesus, the Son of God and the second person of the Trinity, showed them God the Father. Because Jesus himself is deity. He is God. He is establishing his deity. He's establishing that he is God. And he said back in verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And now, speaking of those works, Jesus says something extraordinary about those works. And even works beyond those works. Works yet to come in the future. What does he say? Let's look at verse 12. John 14, verse 12. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Now stop there. That is an extraordinary statement about the immediate future of these disciples. Also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. He's saying that whoever believes in Jesus, these works that you've seen me do, that you've seen with your own eyes, these works you'll do, and even greater than these will you do. Now what's he talking about here? He's clearly saying that when they do these works, that he himself will be gone. Because the rest of verse 12 that we didn't read says, because I am going to the Father. So Jesus is saying that after he's left them bodily, and that's after the crucifixion, after the resurrection and his ascension, when he has gone on to be with the Father, that then they will do greater works than the ones they saw him do. The ones that should have by themselves convinced them that he was God. And what had they seen him do? What had they seen him do? They had really seen him fulfill the scriptures, uh, seen him do things like what we saw in, in our Old Testament reading. Uh, in, down the second column, that as Kelly read and as John included in his, in his prayer, a few sentences, and he gives food to the hungry. Right? The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. They had seen him do things like this. They had seen him fulfill scripture. And just in John's gospel, we have all, just prior to our chapter here, we have all kinds of things they've seen Jesus do. In John chapter 2, they've seen him change water into wine at the wedding in Cana. In John chapter 4, today's New Testament reading, Kelly told us about that they had seen Jesus heal a man's son, right? Even without being anywhere near the ill son, he had healed him from afar. In John 5, they had seen, and these guys had been with him when he did this, they had seen in John 5, Jesus heal the invalid in the waters by the pool of Bethesda when he said, take up your bed, get up, and walk. And he, and he, and he did, and he was healed. And in John 6, they had seen Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. They had seen him walk on water. They had seen him heal the blind and raise the dead. They'd seen all these things, all these things they had seen him do. 
And these things were powerful enough that Jesus said in verse 11, even if you don't believe me for just saying it, at least look back on these things I've done and believe me for doing it, for proving it in your sight that I am indeed God himself among you. But when Jesus says in verse 12, greater works will you do whoever believes in me, what does he mean by that? And how do we relate to that? Should we just, should just replaying those, reproducing those miraculous things be seen as what he's talking about? Is that good enough to fit this claim by Jesus of even greater things? Are the, are the greater things just doing more of the same miraculous things Jesus did when he walked the earth? Well, for some, they say yes. For some, that's, that's how they want this. That's how they want to take this. People always want to just reproduce the miracles of Jesus without seeing what he was really doing in doing these miracles. For example, in the apostles' time, remember Simon the magician? Simon Magus, Simon the magician in Acts 8, remember him? He sees that the apostles can lay hands on people, and when they do, people receive the Holy Spirit, Right? He sees that, and he sees that, and he wants to be able to do that. So he offers the apostles money and says, give me this power also. And he's rebuked, remember, severely by Peter for, say, for asking that. Your silver perish with you, right? You can't buy this, Peter says. But, you know, Simon the magician is no different than some people in our time. And in the hyper fringes of the charismatic movement in our time, some of you may have heard of a guy named John Wimber, and I hate to waste time talking about John Wimber, but John Wimber was the founder of the 1970s charismatic movement called the Vineyard. Okay, Vineyard still exists today. Uh, Wimber's famous quote, and you may know this, but his famous quote and the basis for him starting the Vineyard churches was that early in his Christian life, he had been, I think, into rock and roll and drugs and things like that, but after he got saved and started reading the Bible, he started wondering, he said, when do we get to, as he said, this is his term, do the stuff. If you know John Wimber, that's the quote, do the stuff. When do we get to do the stuff? So he went to the pastors of his church, the local church that he went to, which was just a regular local church, right, like, like us. Um, he meant, here in the Bible, when I read about this stuff Jesus did, like healing the sick, raising the dead, healing the blind, Stuff like that, Wimber said. When do we get to do this stuff after we're saved? When Wimber was told by the leaders of the local church he was going to at the time that we don't do stuff like that anymore, his reply was that he didn't give up drugs just for regular church. So he's not exactly a word and sacrament guy, right? And so he founded his own denomination where they could do the stuff that Jesus did. And that was a... That was a continuing mantra in his time at least while he still lived in that movement. So when Jesus says here in John 14 that his disciples, when he's no longer living bodily on the earth, will do greater things than feed 5,000, greater things than heal the blind, the question is, should we settle a la Simon the Magician and a la Wimber, should we settle for just doing the stuff for simply replicating the miraculous signs that Jesus did. And some obviously say yes to that. But we say no. 
We say no to that. Those greater works, these greater works that Jesus is talking about, aren't just doing the stuff. They're supposed to be, the greater works are supposed to be, according to Jesus' own words, greater works than things Jesus did. Not just reproductions of the same things. And to look at this, I want us to turn to Acts chapter 2. Here are, we like to look at the Bible together, don't we? Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, here are the greater works Jesus is talking about. It starts with this. Acts chapter 2, um, in verses 14 to 36, Peter, you know, preaches this powerful sermon, right? The summar, summarized content of which runs from Acts 2, 14 to 36. And probably that is just the summarized content. Can you imagine what that whole sermon was really like if we just get the kind of Cliff's notes? 14 to 36, it's this powerful sermon about Jesus, which ends with this. Look, let's look, look, look at Acts 2, 36. Let all the house of Israel, Peter says, therefore know for certain, this is the end of his sermon, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter has preached Christ, he's preached him crucified and resurrected, and then what is the response? Look at verse 37, Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, every, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to the kingdom, saved, 3,000 souls. 3,000 people who this day didn't believe and this day did and are forever in the kingdom. Now notice who is not there on the day these 3,000 souls were saved and baptized. Jesus in his entire ministry, had never seen 3,000 people on the same day believe, receive, and accept every word he preached. He had never seen the kind of repentant response that we see here in Acts 2, verse 37, when they said, brothers, what shall we do? And then those people repent, and they're baptized, they're forgiven. So the greater miracle... The greater works than these that Jesus is talking about back in John 14, 12 is this, is that hearts will be changed, that people will believe and actually be converted to belief in Christ, who, who by the sacrifice he made on the cross has the authority to give them new hearts when they repent of their sin and believe in him. That, according to Jesus, is even greater than the miracles he did. That people would repent, trust in the cross of Christ, trust in what he accomplished there, that is a greater miracle in Jesus' economy than simply healing the sight of a blind person. 
And no doubt these disciples, in order to authenticate their authority from God himself to preach the message of the cross of Christ and the continuing operation of what Jesus was doing, these disciples themselves also, as Jesus said they would do back in John 14, 12, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. These disciples did, right? And greater works than these will he do. That these guys would not only do the greater but that they would also do the same things that he did, the disciples, the apostles at the time, to authenticate the message. We see that in Acts 3, in verses 1 through 10. Peter and John uh, are there with this lame man from birth when he's healed. Again, without Jesus being there, Jesus has ascended to heaven. And in Acts 3, these disciples here do a work that Jesus would do. Uh, Peter says to this guy that can't walk in Jesus' name, get up and walk, and he does. And so we do see the apostles do, in many ways, the same things Jesus did, the stuff. We see them do that, but then we start to see in Acts the greater thing of people being saved. Greater than just the miraculous things that we see that we think are miraculous is the miraculous thing of actually changing someone's heart. So the best general statement that brings the stuff and the greater, which is salvation, together, I think is Acts 5. If you go to Acts 5, verse 12. Acts 5, verse 12. You see in here a mixture of people being saved and of people being healed. Okay? Acts 5, 12. Yeah, it started at Acts 5, 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Right? So Jesus had told them, you'll do the things I do, but you're going to do greater things too. And it says right here, right after Jesus left, that many signs and wonders, verse 12, were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Now drop down to verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. I think when we read this passage, I'll read it further, but I think we get to this part. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. I think when we read that, we think about that. Wow, even to get by Peter's shadow, this was crazy stuff. But look at verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. That's the greater thing going on, actually. There are great, fantastic things going on that. I'm not denigrating that. But the greater thing is that people would believe, and that multitudes of people would believe. And it goes on and on like this in Acts, we know. We don't need to wonder what the greater works were that Jesus was talking about. We don't need to wonder about the things that were greater that were actually seen after Jesus' earthly ministry. We're products of those greater things, right? The greater thing is that multitudes of people will come to trust in Jesus and follow him and be sitting in a church building on a Sunday afternoon praising and worshiping him. That's the greater thing. That is the greater thing. And then one more. This is really something. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 7, as if I have to convince you more. But look at Acts 6, 7. After more and more miracles and preaching of Christ and people being saved, what greater thing do we see here in Acts chapter 6, verse 7? It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. All these are indeed, in the words of Jesus, 
greater works. Because in Jesus' entire earthly ministry, we never, ever see a great many of the priests becoming obedient to the faith. He never saw that in his earthly ministry. And we could go on and on. But you get the picture. Jesus promises his disciples a future. Okay, this is a promise of the future. He promises his disciples a future of seeing greater works of the gospel being preached and of people believing it and of people being transformed by it as we have and more and more people coming to belief in Christ as Lord of all down through the ages even to us. And the question for us today is this. Have we come to belief in Christ? Have we come to this kind of life-changing, life-transforming belief in Jesus Christ? Have we trusted in him who forgives our sin, who paid the death penalty for our sin on the cross, and who calls each of us to the greater miracle of believing that he did this on our behalf, of believing that, repenting of our sin and of trusting in him and all he's done? Has that greater miracle occurred in your life? If it has, praise him for it. And know also that he's speaking to us here when he says that he has greater things still for you as a child of his, as you witness to his power and see him do the same thing in other people's lives and then rejoice in that. Isn't that the beautiful thing about being a Christian? Not only can I rejoice that I'm in Christ, but I can rejoice that you are, and we can rejoice that someone else comes into the faith. This is a great thing. This is what we need to thank the Lord for. But if not, if you don't know him that way, you need to pray today that it will occur today. You need to trust him. You need to trust and repent of your sin and trust in Christ. It's the greatest thing you could ever do. Because that is a future promised on that day to those disciples, yes. But it continues to be promised today to we who are the disciples of the disciples of the disciples of the disciples, right? We have an immediate future once we come to Christ. We have an immediate future of being his witnesses, of proclaiming in whatever way he grants us, proclaiming the gospel to others who will experience as we have that far greater miracle even than what we think of as miraculous, but the far greater miracle of knowing the peace and hope and joy of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that is an immediate future. But we also said that additionally there's a distant future, an eternal final future, a promise of the glorious end of all things for the Christian. And for that, we look to John 14, verses 1 through 4. This is the other aspect to the future that Jesus touches on. So we come to know him and we live this life and we see what he does in our life and in the lives of others. But there is this glorious future that he starts talking about in verses 1 through 4 about where he is going ultimately when he leaves them and what he is going to do there. Let's read four, verses four, 1 through 4 again, John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. So you see here that Jesus says that ultimately there's something going on related to his leaving the earth bodily. There's something going on that obviously gives his disciples some glorious future that we have to look forward to. A glorious future in some place that he will go to first, that he will prepare for them, and that he will then return from to take his disciples back to, to be with him forever. He doesn't say this lightly. This is true. He's done this, he's doing this, and this is happening and going to happen. And then the really extraordinary thing he says, he's, remember he says this to his disciples and so consequently us. He says in verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. We could go on about that forever. We could have ten sermons about that. And you know the way to where I am going. We know, we know the way? Well, yes, we do actually. These disciples knew how to follow Jesus. And we know how to follow Jesus because we know Jesus. He has told us, he's shown us in his words how to follow him. He's shown us in his works how he loves and subsequently how we, his followers, are to follow him in love. That's what he was talking about with Thomas and Philip. And we saw this in January in verse 5. Jesus is the way. He's the way. Uh, but at verse 1, he's the way to the Father. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. So we know the way. He's left no doubt as to what the way is and who the way is. He is the way. And following him is the way. Trusting in him is the way. Trusting him and in spite of everything that we run into in life is the way. He is the way. So who can you come to know through Jesus? We come to know and have peace with God the Father through our faith in the crucified God the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we could ask a bunch of questions of verses 2 and 3. We could ask, for instance, what is this Father's house? What are these many rooms? What does prepare a place mean? What does Jesus mean by all this? Well, I think the key to both these verses, verse 2 and 3, is the repeated phrase about going to prepare a place for you. He says it in verse 2 as a parenthetical estate, uh, statement. He's already said in verse 2 that in the Father's house there are many rooms, which, by the way, the many rooms, which actually just means not just rooms, but what that really means, it's a bad translation. It should say permanent dwelling places. Okay, The many is because he's drawing many to himself, but he's preparing permanent dwelling places. I mean, to us, a room might sound like a room. Like, right now, I've got this palatial house, right? I mean, all of us do, I know. But I, I, why would I want just a room? No, he's talking about a dwelling place that's going to be beyond whatever we think is palatial now. But he says, I'm preparing you a room. He really means permanent dwelling places. This is clearly a reference to exactly what you think it is. It's the Father's house in heaven, the final future hope of the Christian. And Jesus is saying, this Christian is your permanent dwelling place the forever home that you've longed for all your life. Don't we long for home, right? I do. And we say, I'm a homebody. There's a sense in which when we come to Christ, we're all homebodies. We long for home. And as much as we love our home or wherever we dwell, as much as we love even dwelling together in this place, it's like there's no place like home, right? Because we know there's a final future for all of us. And that's what we've longed for all our life. And he's saying, I'm going to prepare that place the place that you're longing for, where you'll see him, where you'll be with the saints forever. 
And parenthetically, at the end of verse 2, Jesus says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He's basically he's saying, I wouldn't have said this if it wasn't true. Right? And then repeating that in verse 3, he repeats it as a consequence of him going to prepare a place for you. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come again and will take, take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So he's not just going to prepare a place. He's coming to get us, to take us there. This is a certain reference to the second advent of Christ, most certainly, to the return of Jesus when the one who promised to us this place prepared for us returns for us finally at long last to take us to that place where regardless of exactly what it is or how it is, the point is really that we will be with him. That is our ultimate, final, glorious future. I think we can appreciate James Montgomery Boyce's focus on one certain aspect. I think this is helpful of these repeated words in verses 2 and 3. Boyce says this, he says, yes, there's, there's a place called heaven and that Jesus was going there, but the emphasis here is on the fact that he's going to do something for his people when he gets there, which is to prepare a place, a place about which we know very little and which causes us to focus on maybe speculating on what we know very little of and making a lot of, but speculating what that place may look like. So the focus is on what is the place being prepared but what Boyce admonishes us, to, admonishes us to do is to dwell for a few moments on the part of the phrase that we might not dwell on that says, I go to prepare a place for you. We dwell on the place or the preparation. But he says dwell on the for you. He says, what if we were to focus on the for you part of that? And let me quote James Montgomery Boyce here. He says this. This way, the emphasis would not be upon whatever architectural alterations the Lord may be making in heaven, but rather upon the fact that it is for us as individuals that he is altering it. In other words, Boyce says, it would be the promise that in that great home of the fathers, there is a place being prepared particularly for us. End quote. A place being pre prepared particularly for us. Now you think about Jesus preparing a place particularly for you for a while. We see a little bit of this on earth, don't we? When we either prepare a room for a loved one to stay in or else we're the recipients of staying in rooms prepared especially for us, maybe in someone's home. I have fond memories, I can tell you this as a personal story. I have fond memories that I will take with me to the actual heaven of feeling like I was staying in heaven in rooms prepared down in Florida by Mary's little old 90-some-year-old aunts that we would go to see. Or is it aunts? I don't know. I think we're, Michigan, Ohio, we say aunts, right? But these, these rooms, when we would go see them in Florida, it was like you were the only guest to ever stay in their home. Even though these Christian ladies had people in their homes, I think like six nights a week. But they made you feel like when you were there for the nights you were there, like they had prepared everything just for you. Like you were the only guest that that room had ever seen. So it was like heaven to stay with them. Now if mere people, even little old ladies, can prepare such wonderful places temporarily for you, 
Think how much more permanent, how much more permanent wonder the Lord of the universe can prepare for you for eternity. That's what Jesus is promising here as the ultimate future of those he loves. Well, what do we learn from this book? Look at uh, the first half of John 14 today. Well, first we learn that we have, as those who love and are loved by the Lord, we have a future, final, prepared just for us, resting place, a home with our Lord Jesus in the presence of the Father who has seen to it that a permanent dwelling place has been prepared for us in heaven. And all because we have been loved to the uttermost by the very God of all creation. What greater hope could we have than that in the future? And then secondly, what else do we learn? We also learn, secondly, that while we await that glorious future, we've been called to an immediate future of living in light of that hope, living for Jesus, sharing the hope we have within us, sharing the gospel with people, people who are lost just like we were, sharing the gospel with people who are lost, lost without the hope of the gospel, but yet people who, when they come to faith in Jesus Christ, become people who actually experience a greater work, a greater presence in their life than even just a physical miracle, a presence of new life in Christ, and with a new heart, which is far better and far more miraculous even than the works done by our Lord while he walked the earth. And how does all that happen? It happens by the work of the Holy Spirit, who we see in the next verses that we haven't gotten to yet. Just listen to what Jesus says about him in John 14, 16. Of the Holy Spirit, John 14, 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever. He means when he's gone. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That is talking about what we saw in places in the Old Testament. That is taking us back to something like what we see in Ezekiel 36. Let me just read that for you. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How do we obey the Lord? How do we know the way? It's through the Holy Spirit guiding us. The Holy Spirit is the one we see promised in the second half of John 14, which is yet another reason that John chapter 14 is an all-time favorite chapter, but we'll save that for another time. Let's pray.